0: Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 19 and that can be found on page 1016 on the Church Bible 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 12 to 19 Beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far For it it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good.
1: Why would anyone become a Christian? I open with that question because I just can't shake the fact that in this letter we've been working through from Peter, he has explicitly flagged this idea that Christians can expect suffering Some 17 times now, by my count, just of that word itself, suffer. Although, of course, it's there in other words like sorrow and trial and testing. So if if becoming a Christian still involves suffering, then surely that's an important question for us to be asking. Why would anyone become a Christian? Because I think that that's otherwise a key factor in religious motive, isn't it? A person is going through some kind of awful trial and so they cry out to the gods or they carry out some ritual or prayer or something, I don't know, throw some money into a well or put some fruit into a basket or something and and, and for the very reason that they would be rescued from or, or protected from in the future, suffering and hardship in life. So that on the other hand, no, instead they, they would be blessed and, and prospered in life. Isn't that just kind of central to to how religions work? Peter here is talking a whole other language in these scriptures. He weaves our suffering and God's blessing together into some unfathomable mystery. Here's a few examples of where we've been, just to to help you see what I'm talking about. Chapter 2 and verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Chapter 3 and verse 17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will. Chapter 4 and verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And now today again, Peter says this in verse 19 that we just read. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. How can we put those two concepts together in the same sentence of a faithful creator who wills suffering for us? Quite contrary to how religions otherwise seem to function, suffering in this life seems to be par for the course for the Christian and even God's will in some way for their life. So clearly we can rule out this answer on that question about why anyone would come to Christ. I mean, it just cannot be simply to escape from suffering in life. If we ask the question, though, of Christians today and and ask the question of churches too, who knows how many answers we'd get to that question as to why people come to Christ. But I suggest that the main reason going around should, should actually be centered on the kind of things we just reflected on in the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Because Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sins against God, we can receive a righteous and full forgiveness from God. And that in turn means that that the fruit of sin in our lives, death, is not going to be able to hold us when it comes. We're going to be raised in glory. We're going to enjoy eternal life with our Saviour God. And all of that can only come to us through God's appointed means of salvation in Jesus Christ. Hence why people come to Christ. That really ought to be the basic answer as to why anyone came to Christ. But as I say, I suspect you'd hear various other answers if you did ask around. Because of the way that religions usually do work, I'm sure a lot of those answers that you would get would be around wanting to find blessing and prosperity in this life rather than suffering in hardship. But from these pages of scripture, it just cannot be that simple. This stuff we've been looking at lately in this letter, wouldn't you say we've got to rule that out as as the kind of driving reason for coming to Christ? Scriptures like this actually say, wait a minute, we should expect to suffer if we have come to Christ. Look at verse 12, for example. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Do you hear those words? It's not unusual for a Christian to experience fiery trials. In other words, this is par for the course. How well does that sit with, with traditional religious motive? How clearly do Christian churches teach that reality of Scripture? In fact, a Christian can expect suffering to increase in their life in some ways or in some seasons because of the fact that they have come to Christ, if we read these words carefully. And not just that too, uh, but, but this as well. That extra Christian kind of suffering because of our connection to Christ is something that we should find joy in and treasure in our hearts. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's no getting around it. In coming to Christ, we can, we can somehow now expect to, to share in Christ's sufferings and, and we should find joy in that extra shared suffering when it does come. Basic Religious instinct would be to the contrary. Shouldn't we come to Christ to to be free from suffering? But here's the thing. We do come to Christ to be free from suffering. But the glory that we are saved into is yet to come. The inheritance of heaven set aside for us, as Peter opened up in this letter. And of that future glory, we can be sure in Christ, as he's been telling us, by the promise of God to everyone who does come to Christ. But in the meantime, that very fact, the inheritance being set aside in heaven, it means that our our inheritance is not here, is it? In In this world and for this life. And that means... That for now, there will first of all be suffering. Suffering now, glory to come, most certainly. Suffering now and glory to come. And and so the suffering now in, in this life is for our good in the end, if you try to put those things together. Notice in verse 12 there that suffering tests us. It clarifies where our faith is. It refines us. It deepens our faith in the glory to come. This is the analogy that Peter gave us way back in chapter 1 and verse 7, I think it was. Our faith being purified more and more and more by the refiner's fire as more precious than gold. Do not be surprised as if this was something strange happening to you. This is God's work in you. Notice too in verse 13 that it, it aligns us with with Christ. This is the suffering Christ himself went through to, to purchase us for that glory to come. Specifically in this scripture in front of us, Peter's, Peter's speaking of the suffering we experience because of our association with Christ. Rejoice in far as you share Christ's sufferings. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. As much as we'd like to engage the topic of suffering more broadly today, in this particular scripture, it's it's suffering for the name of Christ that's in view here for us to focus on. And what these verses make perfectly clear, as I say, is that us being Christian somehow should invoke some special, specific kind of suffering that that those who haven't come to Christ won't even know about in their life. Because those outside Christ won't share in Christ's sufferings, as verse 13 says. They're not going to be insulted for the name of Christ as verse 14 says. They're going to miss out on that blessing as, as Peter sees it because the spirit of glory and, and God does not rest on them yet. They won't suffer as a Christian, verse 16, if they haven't come to Christ. So there's no getting around this, is there? This, this idea that this, there's some additional kind of suffering in store for the Christian simply for being a Christian. Christians can expect to suffer for the name of Christ. And I think in that concept here from Peter that there's two kinds of purpose in in what God is doing woven together through this scripture as to our Christian suffering. First of all, the suffering we endure to build our faith. And secondly, the suffering given to us for our witness. Suffering for our own personal faith and, and suffering for our witness. Christ is still building his church in this world, in us Brothers and sisters, and through us, we who have come to him, the church upon whom the spirit of God and glory does rest, are at the forefront of a radical work that Christ is still doing in this world. Brothers and sisters, if we are caught up into what Christ is doing, we will share in his sufferings. Do you know the story of when Saul was persecuting the church? Let me read you a few verses of that from, from Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh, Saul was persecuting The church, for clarity. The disciples of the Lord, it says, men and women of the way of Jesus. But Jesus confronted him and demanded to know why Saul was persecuting him. It is persecution against him. But if we're caught up in Christ's work and his church, then we're going to share in his sufferings too. It's going to be fleshed out against you and I. So too he continues to to refine us and strengthen our faith. And how do we rather think he should go about that if not through suffering? Both of those things make us realise that there is a certain suffering that marks the people of God. There's a third kind of suffering woven through this text as well. Verse 15 given to those who are ungodly. And we don't want any of that kind of suffering, Peter explains. Not, Not because we can't handle suffering. No, because we don't want to be living ungodly lives. Christ takes on rejection and abuse and scorn and slander and so on and he takes on those things willingly to bring salvation to those whom he calls. And he continues to receive those things as he continues to grow his church. And he receives them through you and I. So too he has much yet to do to to purify you and I now that he has brought us into his church. To galvanize our faith. We share in Christ's sufferings as he continues to make us more like him so that we can stand firm as his people in a dark and cruel world. Be sure to catch Peter's language through this text. We rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings. We are insulted for the name of Christ. We suffer as Christians because Christ is still building his church in this world in and through you and I which anchors us in the context that Peter's framing all of this in, of our faith and our witness in this world. There is a judgment hanging over all humanity, verse 17, and, and better that we are purified by the fire now than face the unquenchable fire later. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The Christian suffering that Peter's talking about here isn't just random. It isn't Random, it is God's work and it fits into that basic context of a world-facing judgment among whom we must stand firm in our, our own faith of salvation and to whom we must minister that gospel of God. Suffering for Christ is about suffering for our Christian faith and witness because those two questions there in verses 17 and 18 are, are rhetorical There is no hope for the lost world outside the gospel of God. So in this gospel, we must continue to stand ourselves and and we must let God purify us and galvanise us into that faith more and more and more. And from that place of faith, we must take that hope in the gospel to them too out there so that they too might come from, from eternal suffering into Eternal glory with us in the end. That context, verses 17 to 19, weaves necessarily suffering into our faith and witness. Sometimes the enemy is allowed to hit us to hinder our faith and witness. He wants to get in the way. Have you ever found that? Like, like you were planning to, to serve the Lord in some way or bear witness to Christ in some way, but, but came down with migraines or, or, or anxiety or, or some other frustration got in the way. Sometimes the enemy gets to hit us after our witness in what can seem to, to the untrained eye to just look like regular suffering that everyone goes through. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you took a bold step and did share your faith. And then you got hammered with with depression or the house was broken into or the car had an accident or or some other misery came along. Sometimes the world will just make us suffer for our faith and intimidate us for our witness. Uh, Have you ever felt that in your life? You know, the the heat of the world just putting fear and hurt into you. It happens all the time. And we shouldn't think it's going to go away. Because the gospel of hope we're talking about here is the aroma of life for some people. But it's the aroma of death to others. So we've got to be realistic here and and expect great and continued resistance and opposition when we're carrying such a stench. Sometimes the flesh itself... Our own sinful nature still lingering deep down inside us. Sometimes this can get in the way and resist or interfere with how we seek to live for Christ. Have you ever suspected that in the middle of your suffering? We can't be ignorant to that battleground, it's a reality for every believer. The stress and the turmoil that, that can stir up inside us from our own heart and mind, uh, being divided maybe about our faith or, or unconvicted about our witness to Christ, get confessed into all manner of uh, spiritual suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering. Sometimes we are given suffering so as to highlight Christ's power in our weakness. In other words, suffering can deepen our faith and draw us closer to God, reminding us, uh, as importantly as we need to be reminded, that we're carried by his strength and and not our own strength. So too, suffering uh, itself can be part of our witness to others for the same reason, because it can point people more faithfully to the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul fleshes that out in in a general sense in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He went through it quite specifically too about one particular suffering that he personally had in that same letter. In chapter 12, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We can't have people glorifying us, can we? For our witness to be good and effective and faithful, people must glorify God. But have you ever thought about that in the middle of your suffering? Have you ever fallen to the lie of the enemy in your suffering that that says things like, God can't use me until I am well again? Or stronger? Quite the very opposite, it seems, from the scriptures. Sometimes God allows us to suffer so that we can just become better ministers of his gospel of hope when we seek to comfort other people who are suffering. Again, Paul unpacks that in a bit of detail too in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Suffering makes us better placed to minister to others. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe you went through some unexpected grief or trauma and as awful and as unbearable as it was at the time, it actually opened your eyes to the fact that you are surrounded by people suffering the same thing and you would never have otherwise known or understood where they're at. Maybe you were even given a heart to start ministering to and caring for those people. Has Christ ever worked that kind of suffering into your life to make you better equipped to minister and comfort others, to help you understand what others are going through so that you can can place this gospel of hope into their lives with real, genuine, true compassion and understanding? Anyway, this is half a dozen ways, just as quickly for the time we've got, for which suffering for the name of Christ might be granted to us. The question is, why do we find it so hard to latch on to such beautiful and gospelly reasons when we're in the midst of our suffering? What do we do when we suffer? What's our kind of default go-to mindset? And the question that we throw up to God instinctively, what have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? And we mean it in a negative way, of course, because, you know, that's what happens. In our pain, we just default to a simplistic and and not quite biblical mindset where we think God's people should only have good things in life, you know, the way our minds see good things to be. It's not the wrong question, I want to say. What have I done to deserve this? It's just that we also need to then turn around and ask it in positive ways too. In what way have I borne witness to Christ that he should have granted me to share in sufferings this way? In what ways is God preparing me to bear witness for Christ by refining me in this way? For what, I wonder, is the devil trying to hinder me? What kind of glory is God going to work through me that the devil wants to get in my way? How? Much closer will God draw me and strengthen my faith through this awful thing. That kind of positive questions uh, 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 on that uh, line of thinking, though, are are difficult and almost impossible sometimes to, to take hold of. And they expose us when we, when we realise, yes, that's what we should be asking. I mean, are we even thinking about our faith and our witness for Christ when we're suffering? And exactly how and, and when do we actually suffer for the name of Christ? I mean, are we letting him work through us so much that, that we can see that, yes, this is why we're receiving some of this trial, I've been thinking as I've reflected through this scripture on 1 Peter here about, about what a kind of a process flowchart might look like for, for how we can engage suffering better as Christians when it comes our way. It's a work in progress, I haven't gotten very far. Here's where I'm at. First of all, I think our, our first question should probably be in the negative kind of sense of what we always ask. Am I suffering because I have been living in an ungodly way in some area of my life? I mean, Peter puts that there in verse 15, doesn't he? We can't just ignore that reality. If we invite and let the Spirit of Christ to search us and he reveals that there's something there that shouldn't be there, then we must repent and ask God to forgive us and correct us. There's just no getting around that part of it, so we should ask the question. Peter has repeatedly been telling us in this letter that we need to be true to our faith. But if the Spirit searches our hearts and and nothing is revealed to us, perhaps then, yes, we should turn around and ask more positively, is this for my testing? That's in verse 12, isn't it? And earlier in the letter as well. Testing, refining. In a a visible church today, who knows what kind of motives that different people have, suffering can clarify for us personally where we stand, that we truly do belong to God by the way that we continue to stand firm and keep entrusting our souls to a faithful creator in the middle of this agony. Surely that tells us in our hearts where we do stand. Perhaps our prayers, therefore, could turn to the testing and refining side of this question, exploring ways God might use this, inviting him to to confirm and and strengthen our faith in the glory to come. And so too we might might ask another positive question. Is this suffering for my Christian witness to others? I mean, that's running through the passage here too, isn't it? So If I can pray and reflect and, and come to see that, that, you know what, maybe my suffering might actually be connected to my desire for the name of Christ in this world, then, then I should rejoice in that. I'm sharing in the sufferings of Christ uh, over the glory that he's bringing about for God through me. I should be rejoicing. I should be asking, how can his power be made more clear in my weakness? Through that whole process of questioning, I think we can also ask the other question, God, please take my suffering away. He works all things for our good, so it's not just like he wants us to be suffering all the time. He wants us to come to him for help. He wants us to cry out to him and ask him to watch over us and care for us. Paul asked three times for that one thorn to be removed and so too I expect we should ask for relief from our suffering when it comes. If God does take it away, oh, then surely, no doubt, we should rejoice with thanksgiving, shouldn't we? If God doesn't take it away, then somehow... Counterintuitively, mysteriously, and, and other religion upside downedly, but thoroughly biblically, so too we should likewise rejoice with thanksgiving. It must be His will for us right now. So, if I can go back to my first question why come to Christ? Why come to Christ, given that suffering makes this faith choice sound rather futile? Well, because Christ is ultimately the only way out of suffering in the end. He is the only way into the true hope of glory to come. We come because of this faith that we saw laid out in the creed for us before, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting. We come running to headlong to Christ now, uh, knowing that, yes, yeah, sure, we're going to endure a season of suffering first, but, but only on our way into the endless glory to come. We will rejoice with Christ in glory, verse 13 says. When he comes, we too will rejoice in his glory with him. Or as Paul says in that letter, 2 Corinthians, we do not lose heart. Though our inner, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We will rejoice with Christ in glory forever. Other people out there who haven't yet come to Christ don't have that hope. And we must take it to them. And so we suffer now too, not just for our own benefit of faith, but for others who haven't yet been brought into that glory to come. Our Christian witness proclaims the hope of glory. And if suffering should weave its way in and around our faith and our witness, then praise be to God. Let me pray for us and then we'll rejoice. Heavenly Father, we thank you for such honest scriptures today. As as radical as they seem to be, we thank you for these truths. We know that you do watch over everything in our lives because we are your people. We know that you care for us. We know that you know more intimately than we know our suffering. But you do allow it. And you will use it for our good and for the good of others in your church, even those who have not yet been brought in. It is so hard for us to hold on to these truths when we're in the thick of suffering, Lord. So steal us this day, Father, and teach us and guide us and shape us through these things. Use our suffering for your gospel, Give us new eyes to see how you want to use us for the glory of Jesus in this world. And help us know how to rejoice, not not just in the the glory to come, but to rejoice in the middle of the here and now, in all of its pain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.